All right. Uh, welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Cosmic Matrix podcast. And today I welcome an old friend of mine, Will Spencer. And um, just share a little bit of his you know, official bio here. Will Spencer is an entrepreneur, traveler, and storyteller. His path has taken him from Stanford University to the dot-com boom, the warehouse rave scene of San Francisco, and through 33 countries on six continents. Along the way, his passion for personal growth led him through the traumatic loss of his mother and into the exciting world of man's personal development and transformation. Now he helps men become exceptional versions of themselves through discipline and self-knowledge. Welcome to the podcast, podcast Will. Thanks so much, Bernard. It's great to see you. Beautiful. Likewise. And also to mention, you have your own really amazing podcast going on uh, called The Renaissance of Man. And that's really what I want to dive into, The Renaissance of Man. The, story, the first time when I actually heard what you're doing, like the, the title was very intriguing. I have to say this right on. So because there's something about that needs to happen in this day and age with man, the renaissance of man. So that's beautiful. But before we dive into it, I just wanted, wanted to listeners know that we've known each other for what, almost now eight years, seven years. I don't remember. Like we first on Facebook or something, we met even at a joint uh, a workshop with embodiment workshop with Philip Shepard, who I've had on the podcast, right? You remember there? Uh, you came down here uh, back when I was in LA, and then you joined uh, our the first retreat I hosted with our good friend Fred Alvarez, uh, time of transition retreat in Peru in 2016, and I believe that year that set you off on on the world journey, right? When you really took you know took a backpack and started traveling for what how long for until just recently, right? For 33 years. I traveled for four years. So I left yeah. on uh, in March of 2016, March 21st, 2016. I moved into a new apartment in Phoenix on March 21st, 2020. So four year, the day the lockdowns hit. Wow. Uh, yeah, four years pretty much exactly. to the day, which is pretty wild. Exactly. So share a little bit about yourself. How did you come through this journey, through your own experiences, what we just shared? You know, I'm sure you've you've gone through a lot with the loss of your mother. Remember that? And your own personal, you know, especially when you travel like that, backpacking through 33 countries, you learn a lot about yourself. Um, you know, <laughs> that would be an understatement, right? To the place where you are right now. Can you just kind of, um, yeah, encapsulate your main insights and experiences through this journey. Yeah, I can. But before before I do, I just want to say how great it is to be doing this with you because we've been on such a great journey together. And I remember, you know, we met for the first time at the Philip Shepard workshop. And of course, yeah. you know, just chatting so many times on Facebook. And uh, and then to be there with you for your first time of transition retreat was a really special experience. And that's actually partially why I started my trip in South America, because I had a choice of starting either in Africa or South America. And then you announced your time of transition retreat. It's like, Oh, I got to go to Bernard's thing. I got to do that. Yeah. So that's uh, awesome. It's really great to feel that the different phases of life we've both yeah. moved through and the things we've shared. And so to be here hosting podcasts now, like, yeah, I know. <laughs> Lot, you know what I mean? Exactly. No, I have to also say on the side note, you're an amazing DJ. I remember, you're still the yeah. We had the uh, the last night at, in the middle of the jungle. We had a whole DJ set up, and you had the the party, and it was, it was the best jungle party I've ever experienced. It was awesome. So just on a on a random side note, 
Oh, that was so much fun. That was actually one of the best DJ sets I've ever played. And to prove the point that art thrives under constraint, so normally I'm used to having like CD decks and everything. All I had was my laptop and one channel. So like so the ch- whatever's playing is through my headphones is what you're hearing. So I just had to pick tracks and just kind of go with it in the moment. And so just flowing with it, it was like, this is really working. And I, I, I'll send, I think you have the photo, but I'll send it to you again. It was yeah. a really special experience for me too, to be, have to be totally in the moment uh, yeah. with you guys and for you guys. So that's one of definitely one of my, one of my top three or top five DJ sets of all time. Yeah. That was awesome. Awesome, man. Yeah. So, so tell us a little bit, but I'm really curious myself though, you know, because that's really an undertaking to backpack you know, the world for four years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I didn't intend to like, um, I, um, I thought I'd maybe travel for nine months and, um, and we'll get into my story about how I got there shortly, I'm sure. But, um, the first thing that I can ever say that I authentically wanted for myself was to travel. Um, I remember it was Y2K year 2000. My sister took me to a rave and I was working in, I was a, I was a tech founder, a startup tech founder, a dot-com era at the time. And my sister took me to a rave for new year's Eve in Phoenix and, and fed me a little, a little something on my tongue. And, and, uh, and next thing I knew I was, um, I was dancing all night, like listening to DJ music that I'd never heard before. Mm-hmm. And, um, I woke up in the morning and uh, the next day, we went home, obviously, I woke up the next day and I said, I have to be a DJ. And what I really wanted from that experience, I didn't recognize it at the time, but I had all these desires inside my head that I had projected onto DJing. So I mistook the subject, which was me, for the object, which was a DJ. But Mm. that was enough to begin getting me moving along my path to Mm self-discovery. And one of the big aspects that I wanted from DJing was to travel. I wanted to see the world, right? I mistook the the vehicle to get me there as playing music, but ultimately that was Mm. something that I wanted. And to have something to offer when I travel the world. It was about, I don't just want to travel the world as a tourist passively consuming. There are plenty of people who do that and there's nothing wrong with that. Like I just need to emphasize that as a traveler, there's a lot of hatred that's projected towards tourists. But look, these are people that otherwise wouldn't get out of their homes that are taking the, what they perceive as a risk to go into the world. And so I always celebrate tourists, like, thank you for coming out of your home and seeing the world. Mm-hmm. So that aside, I wanted to have something to offer. And so it took me 16 years to allow that organic desire to blossom and develop and to separate it from the dream of DJing and be like, oh, I don't actually need this thing at all. I just have this dream to travel. And so I left, I sold everything. This was in March, 2016. I sold everything. I just had some boxes that I put in storage, really sold my car, all my furniture, kept my DJ records, of course, um, and, uh, and set off on this adventure. And I thought I'd be gone for maybe nine months. I mean, and that's, you know, and then nine months became a year and then a year became, okay, maybe two years. And then it became like, okay, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to travel until I make it around the world until I run out of money or until I get a message from God to stop. Then I got a message from God to stop after spending six months in India and in Nepal. I was I had run out of gas at that point, so uh, that's when I that's when I um, moved to New Zealand. I uh, thought there's a woman there who I loved very much, who I thought we were going to spend our lives together. That didn't work out, unfortunately. And then I had to slowly extract myself from that situation. I moved back to the states in uh, February of 2020, and uh, then the whole COVID thing happened, and I moved into my apartment the day the lockdowns hit. I had a I had a mattress and a box spring, just me alone in an apartment in in a new city. I'm like, okay, well, I guess it's the time for the next adventure, and that's where the Renaissance of Men came from. Yeah, 
Beautiful. It's so interesting. There's this divine timing we talked about before. There's all this traveling. You just came back. Even what happened, what happened didn't happen out or work didn't work out for whatever reason in New Zealand. And you just came back just in time, yeah. you know, to put here, like, you know, with all this craziness. And it almost seemed like, you know, this I always fascinated to talk about. I always like to explore. I'm always big about purpose, you know what we had to do. And like you mentioned beautifully, and I can relate to that as well at the beginning when you mentioned about the DJing thing. You're like, oh, this is what I want to do. I'm going to be a DJ. This is my purpose. But then it was actually more the vehicle for something else, right? And I, and I can relate to that as well. Like when I came here from Germany, I want to be a drummer, play music and do the rock star thing, you know? And they realized, oh, the music, they're playing drums helped me to like be creative, explore myself, you know, especially through music, as you know, it's such a profound effect emotionally, psychologically. It's almost uh, shamanic process drumming and all of that and that similar to you set off my quest for self-exploration mm -hmm. you know and the saying applies to god your plants will laugh at you so we never know in the moment why we do these things we do we think we have a certain intention but there's some other weird guidance or some other you know once we truly also open the path you know go into the adventure answer the call and then doors are open when they have doors haven't been doors before and it really puts us on this path you know When we look back, like, how did I end up here? I never, quote unquote, planned it, but here I am. And this is actually what I really want to do, mm -hmm. right? And I can see this happen to you because when we were out of touch for for some time and I, uh, then I realized you do this whole, have this new project going on, the Renaissance of Man, and you do your own podcast. I'm like, whoa. And I looked more into it. Uh, this is really very important topic also as well, what, you know, this world needs in this day and age, and especially a lot of men, you know? Yeah. So... Share a little bit about, you know, how did you, how did you get to start the Renaissance of Man? You know, what is it and why? I mean, this is a big topic, obviously, in itself. Mm -hmm. But what did you lead? What, what was the call for you to do that? Well, it's, a, it's a, there's the lead up to the starting of the project, which is my own personal journey. And then, uh, which would, you know, leading up to 2020 and my own personal journeys as a man. And then there's also the, the starting of the project in 2020. Um, these are kind of two different phases. So I'll, I'll start with the easier topic, which is how did, where did the project actually come from? And then we'll back up into how did I come to be doing it? So when I moved back to the United States, you know, I had just spent four years traveling. You know, I had, I had climbed mountains, sailed oceans, trekked across deserts. I had essentially, you know, I scuba dived and mountain climbing courses. I mean, I had done everything adventurous that I could, including uh, ayahuasca ceremonies in, in Peru at the Temple of the Way of Light, which I highly recommend. You know, I'd explored the New Age world. I'd been to the Kumbhmela Hindu Festival, which is like hundreds of millions of Hindus for two months. And I bathed in the Ganges River, uh, the, not the part at Varanasi, which is an incredible city, but the part upstream. So it's still clean at that portion of the river. I've been a 10-day um, Vipassana, going to Vipassana Buddhist meditation retreat. Like I had done, I had done all the things. Like I had, I had has been as close to Indiana Jones as I possibly could <laughs> without that being my intention, right? I would be on the road and an opportunity would present itself like, okay, I'll go do that thing, right? So then I came back to the United States. I went through this experience with New Zealand with my with my girlfriend um, and she had she had four daughters who I lived, loved and still love very deeply, but we were on, we were on different life paths. And yeah. so I, I had to extract myself from that situation very, very gently so as not to cause any any unnecessary, any damage to them, just to be as careful and as methodical leaving that situation, as loving as I possibly could. And that took a long time. And so when, uh, when I moved back to the States finally and, and finally made it, I'd put on a significant bit of weight. Um, and so here I am alone in my apartment, 
in Phoenix, lockdowns had started, gyms are closed. Like I remember when the COVID thing started happening, I would go to like a 24 hour fitness. And I remember watching people starting to wear masks to the gym. And, you know, I was like, oh, what are you doing? You're at the gym. (laughs) Anyway, that's a whole separate topic. But then the gym's finally closed. In fact, I was even staying with my dad at one point and he lived in an apartment complex and the gym at his apartment complex even closed. Like the thing was the size of like a small one bedroom apartment. You know, it's just like some exercise bikes and some free weights. And even they even closed that. So it's like, okay, I'm not going to go out and work out anywhere. And uh, here I am alone in a new city, essentially grieving. What am I going to do? And am I going to sink or swim? And I was like, well, I've always wanted to sort out my weight and get in shape. And there's never going to be a better time than right now. I have total control over my time. I have total control over my space because my apartment's essentially empty. I have total control over my diet. I'm not, I don't have any friends to go hang out with. No, there's no reason for me to be drinking on the weekends or going to restaurants. Like I can control what I eat. There's never going to be a better time than right now. So I set out on that journey and I did a, a, a program called 75 Hard, which is a 75 day program where you do a set of six things. You do two workouts a day, one of which of 45 minutes and one of which has to be outdoors. So you can do one workout in the morning, yoga, weights, whatever, but your second workout, whatever it is, has to be outside. So I would go for walks in the evening. You have to follow some sort of diet or or meal plan, um, drink a gallon of water, take a, take a photo in the mirror every day, um, read 10 pages of a, of a nonfiction, nonfiction, a nonfiction print book, and uh, there's there's one more. But anyway, you can look up 75 hard. So I said, okay, I'm going to do this. And so I started doing that program. And, and again, to following the notion of divine timing, what was so incredible about that experience was that while everyone else is freaking out and the world is melting down, like at that point, you know, people were still uncertain what's going to happen. I had put these structures in, in place to create a system of control around my life. And that held me together. It's like whatever else is going on, I can do this and I can control what I'm eating and I can control, I can move my body. And so whenever, when I had nothing else, like no, literally knew no, like my dad lives in Phoenix, you know what I mean? But he's in his seventies and we didn't hang out so much. I love my dad, by the way. Um, but you know, it was at that point is like, maybe we should all, you know, I didn't, whatever, I, I didn't buy it from the start, but that's a whole other separate thing, but I could control myself in, in that way. And that may have actually like really saved my life. And when I say that, like, it would have been, and there was a moment where I was tempted, where I was like, I, it would be very easy for me to order a PlayStation and get pizza and drink beer and just grieve, you know, and, and start sliding further down the hill. Yeah. And instead I said, no, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to do 75 hard instead. And I built up, I, I completed 75 hard. I built up a ton of momentum. And then uh, in six months, I had lost 40 pounds and I'd gotten in the best shape of my life, just alone in my apartment without needing a gym. I would do yoga. I would go do sprints in a nearby field sometimes. I had a TRX straps. I didn't even have weights. Mm-hmm. And it was just about diet and exercise. And at that point, at the end of that journey, um, during that time, I had become part of several online men's communities. And I found myself expressing myself very openly about the world that I'd experienced and the journey that I'd been on. Um, you know, having seen the world and having done so much inner self work with ayahuasca and therapy and men's groups and stuff like that, you know, I was really deeply in touch with myself and I was deeply in touch with the outer world as well. And when I spoke, men listened, which was the first time I'd ever really experienced that. And so I continued talking and continued talking and found myself becoming a leader in these communities. And then I wrote a a blog post called um, To Lose the World and Gain My Soul, Mm -hmm. which was about... um, 
how angry I was over the whole COVID and, and Floyd situation that I had censored myself on social media. I had been very active on Instagram, posting photography, you know, from my travels. And then people started posting black squares on their Instagram. And I didn't want to post something of my travels and have people like, why aren't you posting a black square? So I just like disappeared off social media. And I realized I got really pissed off about that, you know, and, and I got really pissed off that the world had essentially gone into lockdown. And I was like, I want my planet back. Like, I want to be able to get on an airplane and see the world again. I still want to go to the Middle East. I want to go to Russia. I want to go to Mexico. I want to go to Saudi Arabia. I want to go to Sub-Saharan Africa and look at this crap. And I said, I'm censoring myself and I have something to say. And mm -hmm. so I wrote the blog post, which was essentially, this is what I have to say to everyone and everything. And this is who I am. And this is what I've done. And you cannot tag me with any of the epithets. You cannot tag me with it with, you know, of all the all the standard tropes like i was born jewish right mm -hmm. like i i when i was so you can't call me anti-semitic right <laughs> good luck with that one right and i was you know i i in when i was in college at stanford i lived in the african-american theme dorm for two years so that what that means is half of the population of the dorm must had to be african-american or black i live i was assigned there once uh my sophomore year at random i chose to live there again a second year the CEO of my dot-com startup was black. I lived in the fourth most diverse neighborhood in America, Treasure Island, San Francisco, for 12 years. And I was a member of my community. So you can't call me racist. You can't call me a bigot because I've been through 33 countries on six continents. That's yeah. not something that a quote-unquote white supremacist does. Right. You know, they don't do that, <laughs> right? And so you can't, call me, you can't call me sexist. I was dating this wonderful woman in New Zealand with four daughters. You know, I've got loving pictures of us. So I was like, why am I censoring myself? I've mm -hmm. done everything I can to live a life of integrity, you know, against, you know, as a genuine, authentic man. And I, I should be speaking up. So that blog post was me speaking up. I said, this is, this is what I believe. This is what I don't believe. This is what I think is happening. And I want my planet back and I'm not going to be silent anymore. And that post went kind of viral around the world. Uh, got shared by uh, the political commentator, Jack Murphy, you know, who has uh, something like 60,000 followers more now on Twitter. I got messages from people who ran nonprofits and, suddenly I realized like, oh my God, I've got something to say and people won't hear it. Mm -hmm. So I'll be, I'll, I'm going to start speaking. Yeah. And it was out of that, that I um, realized that what I'd always wanted to do was work one-on-one -on -one with men, that I had an experience that from having been a more sensitive man, that I could speak to that side of masculinity. And I had done all these adventurous, courageous, brave things. So I could speak to the tougher side of masculinity as well <clears throat> and help heal those divides between that often exist between men. And mm -hmm. so I wanted to be a psychotherapist and help do that. I realized that the world doesn't have three years for me to go to, to get a master's degree <laughs> in psychotherapy, right? And plus two years. So I'll just start being a coach because mm -hmm. I, you know, I could just start being a coach and start applying my skills right now and work with uh, high functioning people and mm -hmm. start bringing men together in that way. And so that's when the Renaissance of men was born and it's continued to evolve since then into the podcast and the social media and a bunch of mm -hmm. other projects I'm working on. Mm. Beautiful. Thank, thanks so much for sharing. That's amazing. Very inspiring. But shows you in this day and age, and that would say, you know, let me know if, uh, if you agree with that, that actually an aspect of the healthy masculine, in a sense, is what you have experienced to be authentic, to speak up mm -hmm. in this day and age right now, because that's what you experience. Because I see a lot of people, what's happening now with COVID, you know, I've been very outspoken, a lot of uh, my wife as well. Whereas the split, there's this diversion. Some people go really deep into their just authoritarian followers mm -hmm. in a sense, without questioning, just going along with the problem. They still need daddy government, <laughs> you know what I mean? In the sense, or like, or daddy authority, whatever they tell them on questions, not even they don't have their own opinion. But there are many people also realize there are 
quote unquote waking up to something new or sense uh, something they've ne maybe never done before because of what's happening in the world similar what you experience like many people i can see go just along with it in a sense of like like you beautifully explained like with the whole lockdown some people could just okay i'm just gonna just eat fast food you know watch porn and whatnot lose all my essence and just <clears> submit <throat> to whatever until until the normal comes back right it's very tempting it's very tempting obviously right and then you get free money and and you know from the government and like you know and you sedate yourself basically however as you took the made the choice there's a silver lining right have the free time to change there's a pattern interrupt right okay i'm gonna take charge of my life i'm gonna take care of myself i'm gonna find figure myself out find a new way use this as an opportunity right yeah it ties into like the whole like i don't know if it's heard of the book i'm being becoming anti-fragile right mm -hmm. using this to become anti-fragile which you did and then you find a new purpose you empowered yourself and also you know what a lot of people are struggling you know men and women alike is just having the courage to speak out right not to go along just because you're afraid of oh my god the backlash the mob you know um, culture out there the cancer culture and all of that mm -hmm. which essentially don't have you know it's almost the illusion of power they have because once as you experience once you step into your power and speak out there are others like oh my god this is like you know as you experience when you become authentic and speak out maybe there's fear around sharing vulnerability which is natural But then people actually respond in a very, very positive way because you voice what other people are afraid to voice. And I can relate to that as well, right? So, that, <laughs> so that's what happens. That's very empowering, right? So I'm just going to, we need to talk about, let's focus on men because I can see in my journey as well, you know, my own manhood, you know, because most people, men, <laughs> let's face it, and I can see it with people I've worked with and myself, we are boys in adult suits right in many different ways or children in adult suits right mm -hmm. so what what do you see men have been are struggling with or in general what the men you're working with or what's what's the, the what's the core core issues so to speak mm. there's a there's unfortunately a bunch of them but i think the biggest challenge that i see uh, men working with is that it it seems today that there's two kinds of men so you, you first on one side, you have a lot of the very um, sensitive, soft, uh, soft men. They're very emotionally aware. They may even be very spiritually aware um, and, and very, uh, very sensitive to their own needs and to the needs of women. But they lack a certain fire. They lack, lack the ability to declare strong boundaries. Mm -hmm. they, um, they maybe don't have the best physiques or take care of their bodies properly. Um, maybe they need to lose weight or maybe they need to gain weight. Like, cause some men just are naturally quite, quite skinny and can uh, stand to use uh, to gain some muscle as well. So they're very, they're very emotionally switched on, but they, they lack a certain, a certain edge, a certain necessary edge to navigate through the world. So that's one, one side of one, one side of men. The other is uh, the side of men that probably have too much edge that don't that are that are quite good at navigating through the material world. They're very sharp mentally, perhaps even very sharp physically, but they lack an emotional or spiritual awareness or spiritual uh, emotional or spiritual depth. And the thing is, is that it would seem and, and women, uh, in my experience, 
this is this is their experience of men, and this is um, Sheryl Sandberg, the CEO of um, Facebook, actually gave a, gave a quote about this in her book uh, Lean In. And I'm sure we don't need to talk about Sheryl Sandberg, but she said to women, you know, what you're supposed to do in your 20s is you're supposed to date all different kinds of guys, but don't marry them because then when you become 30, there's a whole different kind of guy that will be necessary that maybe won't be as exciting, but that'll be a good father and provider. And so in the, in the men's movement that this terminology shows up, it's sort of unfortunately labeled a late, uh, laden with a sense of value judgment. And I want to strip that away, but let's say that those are their alphas and betas, you know, and I, I think it's, I think it's a false duality because not every man can be an alpha leader. Um, you can't be a leader without followers. And there are some men that just want to belong and don't want to lead. So I want to make sure to strip those terms of any value judgments. So let's just say that there are out there strong, confident, uh, dedicated alphas who maybe aren't emotionally integrated and you have uh, soft, uh, sensitive, uh, accommodating, agreeable betas who don't have an edge to navigate through their lives. And so what if you talk to women and for the women listening to this, you may recognize this, you may bounce back and forth, you know, when you start dating um, between uh, I want to date, a, a, you know, the, the, the awesome guy with the leather jacket and the motorcycle. Right. But he's a terrible boyfriend. Right. The bad guy, nice guy syndrome as well, right? Exactly. That's exactly what. And then you'll date a nice guy, and then the nice guy isn't isn't exciting at all. And that's a bounce back and forth until you know, roughly, you know, gets to time to have children, and then many women will settle down with with a nicer guy. But the marriage will be very unfulfilling because you know, in part because the man is disintegrated. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the thing is. That those are not, and so women naturally draw the conclusion that well, if this is all men are, then men are shit, right? Mm-hmm. Because, but the reality is that those are not two different kinds of men. That's one man who's been shattered in half, and how he was brought up uh, determines to some extent which side surfaces. So I'll give myself as an example. Uh, my dad worked very, very hard to provide a very nice life for for me and my sister and, and my family, but it meant he wasn't around very much. So I was uh, I was primarily raised by my mother, who as much as I love her and and I forgive her and I value her very greatly, but she was a narcissist and she was uh, she made me into her son husband is, is the term that gets used mm-hmm. right now. Um, a sort of emotional incest is another term, right. and that weighed very heavy on my heart and spirit and, and really in my body, and so it made me quite soft and quite sensitive to be accommodating to her needs. And it was a burden that I wasn't really meant to carry, but it did switch me on emotionally. It just made it very difficult for me to navigate through the world of men. Um, so I would be more beta, I guess you would say, mm-hmm. uh, but through my own journey as a man um, and through my own initiation, which we'll get to, I began to discover my edge and I cultivate that through travel. And so what I seek to do is to help men understand whichever side of the line that they're on, that there are whole untapped potentialities within you that help that will help you become the fulfilled man that you want to be. Because there are many men who are very successful in the world, say, uh, financially, uh, in their careers, etc., where their home lives with their kids and their wives are just are just a mess, right? Where the, right. the, the marriage is unhappy because they don't have enough emotional availability. They kill it in the office or they kill it, you know, whatever it is they happen to do. But when they come home, their wife is unfulfilled and they're not there for their kids. And these men don't necessarily know what's going on. And they end up in just as bad a place as the man who's very soft without an edge, who just kind of gets led along by life. And the thing is, is when I encounter in men is, is that, uh, that, dichotomy that split that duality and help to remedy it in men as i've remedied it in myself and there were specific steps i took along the way to doing that the first one was initiation and um you know for thousands of years 
in cultures around the world. This is this is a repeating pattern. Um, when a boy reached puberty, or when the generation of boys reached puberty, the men of the village would come and take them away from their mothers. And the and the um, there's a book about this. It's called Iron John by Robert Bly, which I recommend very highly. This is a good introduction to many of these topics um, for men who are curious and women as well. So the the men of the village would come and take the boys away from the mothers, and the mothers would participate in the drama and be like, "No, don't take my son," you know, but knowing that they're participating. Right. And the boys would be taken into the forest, and they would be put through some th- some sort of trial, some sort of challenge. And um, un- you know, because this is life and death was on the line, some of the boys would not survive. Right? You had to essentially you had to survive. And like there's a there's a um, there's a tribe in I want to say it's in Africa, and uh, they paint the boys' faces with mud, and the mud dries. And then they circumcise the boys who are 13 and uh, they have to not, the mud has to not crack. So their face has to remain still as they're being circumcised at age 13. Wow. The mud cracks, then you're not a man, right? So that's, that's a, that's a, we don't have to do that in our modern society anymore, but certainly circumcision is really its own topic, which is a yes, whole. I was just going to say this. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a bit, it's a big thing for sure. Yeah. Um, but so we're setting that aside, but that's the level of challenge. Or if you see the movie 300, like in the movie 300, the young Keen Leonidas is sent into the woods and he has to hunt, he has to hunt like a, a wolf or something like okay. that. And there's this cool scene where he's in the snow and he has to kill the wolf. And if the boy comes back, he congratulations, he's now invested with the responsibility of being a man. He has yeah. earned regard in the eyes of, of the men of the village and the way that they see him changes and the way as a result, he sees himself changes. And he begins to take on the mantle of, of manhood as the next generation, as the generation of fathers ages into elders and he becomes a warrior. Okay. So that's an ancient process that has been part of human societies forever. We don't have that process in 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 the West. We don't have it in America. I don't believe that it exists in Europe. We have um, we have fraternity hazing doesn't really count. Yeah. We have military hazing doesn't really, not really the same thing. Can kind of serve a similar function, but other than those two things, it yeah. doesn't exist. And what you said at the start about uh, boys driving male bodies is the way that I usually frame it. The mm-hmm. reason why that is, is because the men are uninitiated, because I believe mm-hmm. there's a biopsychological switch that lives in the back of our heads that needs to be flipped by an initiation, which yeah. is something you can be able to, you have to be able to fail at. Right. And so, um, so I was very fortunate uh, in 2013, literally right before you and I met. In fact, I don't think these, uh, these two things are a coincidence. Um, I was I was initiated with an organization called the Mankind Project, and that mm-hmm. was their whole mission was to lead initiation uh, weekend initiations around the world, and it's a fantastic process. They've been doing it for forty years, and so I found my way into this organization. I went to the New Warrior Training Adventure. I was initiated, and this whole new world came online in my mind. And I was mm-hmm. like, there is no doubt in my mind that I'm a man now, and I better start acting like it. And that was when the that was the first time. When during my own initiation, I got to take all the softness and discover its value in a community of men and also be challenged by men from the other side to rise to their level and vice versa. And so for the first time, I got to look into the mirror as many men did and do and say, this is what it means to be a man. And so I began knitting those halves of myself together. And that ultimately manifested within a couple of years of liberating myself from all these circumstances that I got myself in. I had trapped myself in this life. It's like, this is not serving me anymore. And within within two years, I had, ta- I had found my way into men's groups, into therapy, and just began emptying out my inner self, turning myself inside out and shaking yeah. out all the shit, you know, through yeah. tears and crying and, you know, just 
you know, all sorts, all sorts of therapy and stuff like that. And I had liberated myself to fulfill my dream of traveling the world, but it began yeah. with initiation. Yeah. And so that's, that's what, that's a lot of what's missing in men today is that experience of, exactly. I've been through a thing where I have to discover some inner resources inside myself to get past, whether that be God or your higher self or however you want to phrase it. And to be able to fail and to have to rely on something higher and then to be seen in a community of men for having done that, mm-hmm. that initiation process is very powerful and more men desperately need it. Yeah, that's excellent. That's the, I want to talk a bit about this initiation process because it's so important. Thank you for sharing so much. I can see myself in you and I'm sure many other men. I can even see myself in your upbringing, very similar. My dad, the company man, a lot of work, traveling. My mom raised me, the housewife. You know, I had a quote-unquote good childhood, but within it came narcissistic wounding. You know, mm-hmm. similar, my mom then also used me as a, you know, unconsciously with her stuff. No parents are perfect, all of that. But it also, quote-unquote, retarded my development because I was also <laughs> truly, you know, similar to you, like very overly emotional, like a beta a male, so to speak. You know what I mean? I didn't even have... No success with no success with the ladies and whatnot. Like I didn't even have, I think, my first girlfriend I had at the age of nineteen or twenty. Oh, that's what's the first time I had, you know, actually sex and whatnot. So I was very like, you know, insecure within myself, very over emotional, which developed another sensitive side of me, you know. That's 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 absolutely right, but very unbalanced, you know. And it took me some while because it ties into the process, I think, to really fuse both the that's for lack of better words, the more both male and uh, beta and alpha male to become a man, uh, you know, requires a process of individuation. You know, in, in, in general, right? That's a process of individuation to become yourself. And I can see how my individual process was also delayed because of the way I was grown up. You know what I mean? And kind of like um, missing this initiation. But it's very interesting because what is missing is a rite of passage, right? That's really for man in general, like in the season and other cultures. And what we have nowadays, as you hinted at, is this pseudo unconscious initiations we engage in because it's archetypal. We need it. Like you have fraternities or you have raves, which I went to, you know what I mean? That was almost like similar to you, desert raves in the nineties. Like I'm going out, I'm taking, you know, psychedelics. That was my initiation. You know, that helped like even like it was not conscious, but it brought me, it bring to something deep. I remember that at some point I, I, I facilitated my own initiations. I'm taking the Terrence McKenna example of five grams of shrooms, just close, you know, in, in a dark room. And, but then I almost had to fa- face my shit with my parents and all of that. And came face to face of who am I, my manhood, as a man, my sexuality, everything from this higher perspective. And I was forced to integrate it myself, right? But we need, we miss, we are missing role models. You know what I mean? I think that's what I've learned. I remember sitting, I was, you know, come, came back from, and, and my, my dad is very loving, you know, great relationship with him now. But I remember when I first came back uh, from the US, my first uh, travel back to Germany, early my early 20s, I sat my dad down with a beer. I'm like, why did you, wanted to talk to him about women? You know what I mean? Tell me something about, you know what I mean? So I had to figure all this out myself, even like that ties in not understanding women, especially nowadays, how young kids learn about women and sexuality through porn. Online porn, literally, that's a huge issue in itself, which we can dive into into as well. But this rite of passage, you're so uh, right on. This is so much missing in this day and age to have this conscious initiation from boyhood into manhood, right? Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. happening unconsciously, so we mistake like pottering, you know, you know, trying to get laid out in the bars, whatnot. You know what I mean? The pseudo initiation, and they become very distorted, and that's where maybe more the toxic masculine aspect comes in because it's not a not a conscious process, so to speak. 
But what I really like what you said, it's really about what you mentioned before, fusing this more sensitive side, the yin and the yang, right? It ties into the alchemical marriage of the inner male and female, which we've talked about, which Philip Shepard has talked about to a degree yeah. as well, right? You know, mm -hmm. so to speak. So um, going back to that, so which with this whole, because what you experience in yourself, I think a lot of men, you know, what what is not to dismiss, what a lot of men are struggling with or many of us is just basic childhood wounding so whatever you then become in your inner childhood be it more better or alpha is also related to the way you grow up right so we need to have a certain compassion a certain psychological process in the sense of integrating these parts yes right is that and that's what you discovered through the also the what is it the good man project the mankind project mankind project exactly yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting uh, the whole childhood wounding thing and, and and how all that surfaces. So there are, there are two kinds of there are two kinds of, of healing, and uh, one gets talked a lot about, and it's kind of just part of our culture right now. And the other doesn't really seem to be super well understood at all. Uh, the more feminine kind of healing is um, where we all sit in circle and we share and open up until something traumatic or or challenging surfaces, and then we talk through it. And that is a very that is a very feminine style of of healing. And that is very necessary. That works for people who are good at like talk therapy. Like that worked really good for me because I love to talk. So I'm very verbally, very verbally actuated, right? So it was very easy for me to sit down in a men's group or for me to sit down in a therapist's office and talk through the things going on inside until, until those things, until what I had going on surfaced, excuse me, and then to dive and then to sort of dive into it in more of like a gestalt kind of process and, and release it. Um, and, I, and I think similar to your experience, like that narcissistic wounding connected me very powerfully to parts of myself. It was my own, you know, like, how does the universe work the way that it does? Like, you know, it, we, we receive the upbringing we need to give us the skills we need, and then we have to go in and cultivate them in the world, right? So mm -hmm. I look at my upbringing as like, wow, like it was really, really tough in so many ways, but it connected me to so many gifts and I'm so grateful for it because that gave me a very strong base to stand on within myself to be able to go out and challenge myself in a, for, in a more uh, masculine form of healing, which, is, which I hear referred to as interventionism. And that's where you simply say something really crystal clear with a very, with a very sharp sword and very clean. And it can be very difficult to get to this point because you have to know yeah. what part of yourself is handling the sword. So if I, I go up to a friend and I'm like, hey, you know, hey, Tom, like you're looking kind of fat. You should sort that out right? Mm -hmm. That could be potentially very confronting for Tom. But if I say it, and there's all different ways to go about it. If I say it in the right way, with the right tone, with the knowledge, and I'm very clean in it, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to abuse him. I'm trying to crack through his shell to get him to recognize something very important. Yeah, That's a more masculine interventional style of healing. Men need both. Mm -hmm. I very much needed, I was, I, I very much worked for me to, um, to do the, the sort of more feminine style of healing, talk therapy. But then I needed to go out into the world and be actively challenged by life and other men to step up my game mm -hmm. and to hold point blank to my face like, you're screwing up, we need you to do better. And I, I manifested that through travel. So whether I was on a sailboat and getting chewed out by the captain for screwing something up or part of a mountain climbing team in India and mm -hmm. like really having to step up my performance for, for the other guys, you know, through, through being challenged in that way, that held such a powerful aspect of my healing as well. And what our culture is not very good at, and I, and I actually, I actually want to um, challenge this notion that it's daddy government. I think now we have mommy government, <laughs> I, you know, and, and it's, it's a real thing. I think we have a hyper, like 
but hiding behind this notion of patriarchy. Patriarchy does not exist. It does not exist and it never has. It's it's like so many other it's like so many other narratives. When you scratch beneath the surface a little bit, the whole thing disappears. What's actually going on? What's actually going on is we have a hypo hyper feminized society. Mm-hmm. Uh, the gynocentric social order is what um is what Rollo Tomasi says. And we'll, we'll this author Rollo Tomasi whose work I recommend. We'll go into that later. But so that really that isn't actually good at teaching men and challenge them, challenge them directly to, um, to be better. It's very numbing. It's very mm-hmm. safe. Let's all be safe together. We're all in this together. No, no, don't stick out from the herd. We're all in this mm-hmm. together. Don't be different. Don't question. I don't think that's a masculine thing. Yeah. I think that's a, this is not about men and women, but by the way, sorry, my, yeah. something just fell off my desk. This is not about men and women, by the way, masculine and feminine are two different energies, as I'm sure that you've gone into quite a bit. So I want to make that right. really, really clear. But I think we have a hyper feminized society that's very numbing, that doesn't encourage men to step up, that doesn't challenge them. Those of us who have fought, some men are very lucky to have fathers that do challenge them and mothers who do support them emotionally. Right now, we're in a place where it's like, let's just numb and numb and numb. Mm-hmm. And so some men, I, I succeeded very much in talk therapy. And then I need to go out into the world and recognize like, no, I need Ben to tell me what's up. So those two sides of healing are very, very important. And they're both very difficult to do well, because one of the, the dangers of both of them are identical. The dangers of feminine healing is that you can get someone to open up and then you can wound them very, very deeply. If you don't have a, if, if you're using, if you have a rusty sword instead of a scalpel, right. you know, and there are plenty of examples. I'm sure that you're aware of, of, of energy healers or whatever, who get people opened up and maybe now they're in inserting their own ideologies and it's like yeah. that's extraordinarily dangerous you know essentially reprogramming people which sucks right and the other the other danger of the masculine interventionist style of healing is you can actually brutalize somebody you can yeah. actually like abuse them right and they and they shut down and neither are neither are, are neither is worse than the other they're both equally bad and they both require an equal amount of skill and what our culture right now particularly in the healing arts is not partic- is not good at is navigating that boundary between how can one healer do both? I'm, I'm, that's something mm-hmm. that I explore in working with men with like, I can take them into facilitation processes that I've experienced and led many times to get them to open up. But I can also through, this is why I say through discipline and self-knowledge, you know, through discipline, it's like, no, you, you, you set this goal. You are accountable to this goal. What is going on there? And to really mm-hmm. challenge them and like to see men's eyes open up. Like I tell my clients, you are now accountable to me. If you've never right. been accountable, you are now accountable to me. And some men really respond to that. And then I can couple that with my experience in the healing arts, moving more into facilitation and opening up. And so that's a boundary that I kind of, that's, a, that's not a boundary in the right way. It's like a, it's a line that I go back and forth across. Right. And I think that that's what the integrated man of today really needs is not to be divided from one side of his nature or the other, but to do both. And you need both to succeed in the outer world, to be able to establish boundaries and goals and deliverables and perform in the world of men, and also to be available to your wife and children or your partner. To be able to do all of those things at once, romantically, professionally, is the recipe for fulfillment today. And it's uniquely possible today, like no time in history. And so my own journey has showed me that. And so I'm happy to pass that on to to men in the ways that I can. Beautiful. Yeah. You mentioned some very interesting, profound things. 
Number one, you're absolutely right. I see it in my profession. You know, I do sessions as well. I work with my wife. We do online courses. And the needed the approach for both, the more, quote, feminine or masculine approach is absolutely necessary. You know, I would even say the feminine approach is not just talk therapy, but also somatically going into the body. Let's process. Let's go. Let's feel, right? Yes. Very much needed. But some, we also even sometimes go with the flow, just see how it feels. But sometimes we even said in our, in our embodiment of a soul awakening course, you also need to discipline. You need to do the practice. We can do it for you. You need to have active yang. It's not sitting back and letting things happen, right? And I see this also similar to you when, when I work with people, like, because everybody's unique and everybody's different, everybody needs a different approach. And then when, if you tune into another person, some person may need, you need to engage, uh, uh, you know, address more the yin yin side, you know what I mean? The, you know, the feminine, like get the emotional up, you know, get through the armor. And sometimes people need a more stronger mirror, call them out very much needed i need to be called out sometimes right <laughs> and like it's it's absolutely my wife I and mean, we call each other you know it's it's all context but what is very important i think you hit the nail on the head um you can damage people either way so that's why as a be a therapist or coach or when you work with others as you're aware of you can only you have to be aware aware of your own shit right you have so you don't project it onto other people and I see there's a lot happening i can easily check myself when i give a mirror is it my own projection Mm -hmm. right or am i truly helping the other person so mm -hmm. or the other like am i trying to install my own ideology and belief or am i truly helping other person mm -hmm. because as you know when you work with others what works for one may not work for another and so oftentimes the advice we give others we need to first apply ourselves mm -hmm. so that's really like i think it's very important that I, I call it in a sense that your level of being determines also your own integration, your own wholeness, how you truly can help others. Mm -hmm. Hence, you also, you know, you also embody the, the, the archetypal journey of the wounded healer, right? Mm -hmm. Going sure. through the journey yourself and now the return, so to speak, to help others, mm -hmm. right? So that's very important to point out. The other one I wanted to say, you absolutely, I just realized that now, yeah, it's not about daddy government, it's about mother government, mm -hmm. <laughs> government, yeah. because it's so obvious, especially nowadays with this socialist leftism that's happening, that's toxic feminism, right? The, yeah. And and that's a whole other topic we can dive deeper, this whole distortion of left versus right, because on the true political scale, more left simply means more government, which we are experiencing now, more being taken care of for, of my mother government, not taking responsibility anymore, right? So numbing people, as you see. And more right is actually less government. It has been completely distorted with some sort racist infusion whatnot nowadays but it's more the masculine principle right they're more like okay i'm going to take care of myself the self-responsibility but it's so right that you know that what we're experiencing now is a numbing this leftist tox it's like toxic feminism it's just any you know it's just you know feelings matters over facts so to speak you know you know we need to put you in safe space so you don't get offended anymore and there's no responsibility it's completely this toxic feminism leftism um shows itself in this complete victimization right it's good like as long as i'm like some sort of an identity group of some sort of victim i you know have more importance than others so to speak Right. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're seeing right now, this kind of pathogen. And I, I agree with you. Um, even Philip Schapp would agree with you. We don't live in the patriarchy. There's no such thing as patriarchy. We just, these words are being thrown around without people understanding and completely conditioned, you know, without seeing the depth of it. And right now we need this renaissance of men because we need men to also step up to the plate because um, what is also, I want your take on that, what's called nowadays in the mainstream toxic masculinity. 
right? Which has been so distorted, obviously, in, in many ways. And we see even uh, advertisement. I remember the Gillette uh, um, commercial <laughs> some time ago. This toxic. What, what's your take on that? What do you see in, in, in official culture around this so-called toxic masculinity that's promoted? Or there's there's a there's a lot there, but before we dive into it, there's something there, there's there's something that's underneath this discussion. Before we really get into toxic masculinity and, and what's going mm -hmm. on in culture, there's a there's a deeper dynamic that's going on that'll inf that'll help inform all of it. One of the things that our culture is really comfortable with right now is criticizing and is is pointing to acknowledging and criticizing the use of male physical power. Right. That's mm -hmm. that's the you know. Toxic masculinity is about that. It's violence, right? Like physical violence, the culture is really rape culture, etc. Yeah. One of the things our culture is absolutely terrible at and pretends does not exist is feminine power. Feminine female power is not in the realm of physical force. Feminine female power is in the realm of uh, shaming, right? Mm -hmm. That is the power that women have. And that power is so strong that when you even speak and you say something that women have power to shame, you get shamed. And you can, dem you can demonstrate in front of you that women have power. And so what we have in our culture now, in this hyper-feminized culture, is not a culture of physical force, right? You don't have, you don't have jackbooted thugs coming to your house, thankfully, yet, you know, telling you what to do. You have the total media apparatus of television, social media, movies, engaged in the act of shaming. Mm -hmm. widespread, uh, widespread, large scale, full force shaming. That is a that is a female power. That was the power that was invested in women as part of the as part of the division of power of the sexes. Because uh, women were given uh, a time out of memory, probably the ability to shame men and and harm their souls. Mm -hmm. Men were, and this is probably there's a biological component to this because women control uh, access to reproduction, right? So you're not going to have you're not going to have a baby without a woman. So a woman can shame you as a man and shame your soul, and therefore you're not going to reproduce. Meanwhile, you have men have physical power over women's bodies, right? So we're really good at saying that men have physical power. We're not good at saying that women have shaming power because right. that shaming power is so blown up and so inflated and so all around us, we take it for granted and don't even see it. Mm -hmm. Like the like the um, like the proverbial fish in the ocean, like what is water, right? Mm -hmm. We, we're swimming in we're swimming in an ocean of shame, and you see it in movies. You know, just look at the ridiculous dad meme, like The Simpsons and Ray Romano. Everybody loves Raymond. It's there. It's in Star Wars, and you see the constant shaming of Han Solo is a deadbeat dad. You know, like mm -hmm. Kathleen Kennedy of the of Lucasfilm said, "The Force is female." Right? That was her fame. That was the famous shirt. Luke Skywalker is a is hiding on a planet, drinking drinking alien alien teat milk. You know, <laughs> this shaming of male archetypes. Right. You see what they, I don't know if you saw what they said to John Luke Picard in the latest Star Trek series where he gets chewed out by the whatever the Admiral of Starfleet says sheer fucking hubris the Terminator the T-800 Arnold Schwarzenegger's character in the latest version of Dark Fate has returned back in time successfully kills John Connor and then becomes a draper like he hangs <laughs> drapes he's a robot he hangs drapes and you can yeah. look that clip up on YouTube yeah. shaming and now you have um, Nathan, Nathan Drake the, the modern Indiana Jones archetype from the Uncharted series is being played by um tom holland who played spider-man like he's kind of the, and robert pattinson is playing bruce wayne this is the continual undermining of male archetypes in the form in the mm -hmm. form of shaming that's mm -hmm. being conducted by a hyper feminized society against men and it's being normalized right? hyper normalized yes and yeah. so and so toxic masculinity 
in, in as a term is a shaming term is used mm. to shame men out of something very important. And Jordan Peterson made the observation that many women cannot tell the difference between a competent man and a tyrant, right? So, like, to women, they, they can look very similar. A very com- a highly competent man who's not a tyrant at all can appear very similar in many women's eyes to a tyrant. And so, that shaming, that toxic masculinity is designed to confuse well-meaning men that they don't want to be mistaken for a tyrant so they avoid competency because mm-hmm. they respond to that shaming. And so this is why inner work is so deeply important right now, because only through inner work, and I think also through physical fitness, can we purge our bodies and our histories and our minds of shame. And as soon as we cannot be shamed, we cannot be controlled by the system, but we cannot be controlled by the social order. Toxic masculinity is a system of, is a term that's used to socially control men, to shame them out of competency, because right. competent men coming together in groups are, are generally genuine threat to the social order. And so the renaissance of men is more than just my personal brand. The renaissance of men is a 40-year men's movement beginning uh, with the mythopoetic movement in the 80s that's building up men's inner and outer strength that I, I think now is culminating in a moment where men can see the social order and can no longer be shamed by it and are coming together in communities and groups to stand up and say, we will, they're not saying overtly, we will no longer be shamed, but they're saying, you know what, we reject your social contract and we're going to build it ourselves. We built the civilization because the message of woke, woke can't actually create. And we can yeah. get into reasons why that is. Woke doesn't create anything. Woke says, we are victims. You mm-hmm. built a system on the back of our victimhood. We'll just take your institutions as payment. Thank you. That's right. what woke exactly. essentially says. And so the men are like, okay, you can have the institutions. Let them, let them crumble because you don't know how to run them. We'll build new ones. Right? We're living right. through Atlas Shrugged, essentially. Right. And so the, the history of the 40-year men's movement, the renaissance of men, this entire 40, 40-year process, is men arriving in that place to say, we're going to build it ourselves again. We did it once before. We'll do it again. And we will no longer allow ourselves to be shamed by you. And so that's sort of uh, what I'm attempting to surface to men about what's actually going on in our society yeah. today. Wow, wow, that's that's amazing. Well, thank you. That's so like so so many people need to hear that. Mm. Especially, it's so right. I just read, and actually, I just remember Laura, my wife. She wrote an article about toxic feminism, right? But she released a lot of backlash from women because she pointed out exactly. <laughs> <laughs> she pointed out that elephant in the living room that toxic feminism is based on this shaming like there's a lot of like you know toxic feminism is more on a cover it's more like you know um it's it's very manipulative yes. you know like when you look at to- true toxic masculinity is more um overt right it's more obvious it's more violence but toxic feminism is more covert right it's the shaming it's the guilting it's like it's a passive aggressiveness and it's it's some nastiness behind it you know and we see this for example with the me too movement you know which like has you know which is essentially turned into full-on just shaming man you know not questioning and you got to believe every woman and whatnot and right away the shame the shame accountability there's no responsibility in, in handling these situations from a more true compassion manner by the way you know what i mean not a compassionate in, 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 in not taking responsibility, but, you know, this underlying shaming, I can see it even as you were talking about, I was looking at my own relationships because of similar upbringing, my past relationships. I was also shamed in many oh. ways, you know, <laughs> manipulated. And then I took it on. Oh, I'm a bad boy. You know what I mean? Like, I'm a bad boy. I'm a bad, like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Always being apologetic. I had full on this, uh, um, 
the Mr. Nice syndrome uh, going yeah. on, always uh, be, you know, feeling sorry for things I shouldn't feel sorry for at all. And it's like you're really being made, you know, uh, this shaming is just is so ingrained in our culture. And then as you explained it, it became more and more obvious. It's really, and that's the underlying, you're absolutely right to understand this toxic feminism, what's happening femi or in our official culture in general and has exact, you know, even exponentially, ingrained normalized nowadays the shaming is the underlying um force behind this distortion of toxic masculinity because that in itself in itself is shaming right yes toxic masculinity is not an excess of masculinity it's a lack of masculinity so it's it's mm -hmm. it's these boys driving male bodies right that that, that don't have the ability to self-regulate the use of their their physical their physical power, their testosterone, their energy, which are which societies used to celebrate and channel productively into productive creative ends. That was what was consult what was called to toxic masculinity. What we would unfortunately, those are boys. Those are boys that are that that used to be taken into a community of men, honed, shaped, disciplined, and used that force to build society up. That was mm -hmm. what that, and then toxic masculinity became full masculinity as the son was led by the father. We have a, we, we've spent the past 50 or so years more probably in American culture, shaming and denigrating and, and essentially destroying the image of the father. And there's a book called The Boy Crisis by Dr. Warren Farrell, which I recommend, which is a, mm -hmm. a very scientific explore, exploration, socio-scientific. He's a lovely man, exploration of what happens to boys when there are no fathers in the home. And he breaks down all the societal impacts from drug abuse and suicide and dropouts. And, you know, even he even traces, you know, the whole school shooter phenomenon to these are fatherless homes gang violence is due to fatherless homes, etc. And he breaks it all down. He lays it all out. And yeah. so, we've spent the past 60 years removing the father from having influence in society. And what happens? Society begins to break. Boys begin to break. They don't have a father to shape them and discipline them to become useful and productive, happy and fulfilled members of society. And so, they begin expressing their energy, their natural testosterone, their natural productive energy. Like there's a, I was talking to, um, I was talking to a friend, an author named Alison Armstrong, and she was telling me, she was relating a secondhand story about her friend who had some, uh, who for some medical reason needed to take a testosterone injection. Uh, it may have been related to some medical procedure, like she needed an injection of testosterone. And so she took injections of testosterone and she was wired all the time. And she was like, oh my God, is this what it's like to be a man all the time? And the men around her were like, well, yeah, probably. <laughs> and she's like, I had no idea. It's that women don't fundamentally understand what it is to be in a male body. And many times women look at men and think that they're just broken versions of women and don't mm. recognize. And many men think that too. Many yeah. men don't recognize that there is a unique and valuable experience of being male that's positive and good and true. Mm. And that is separate from the female experience and we need to reconcile those experiences what we have right now is an attempt again by this shame culture to shame men into being more like women some men because they're truly truly good-natured men will will fall into that like okay you're right that was me like of course i wanted to make women happy i was raised to be a pleaser right not mm -hmm. to i didn't want to make mom upset as long as i make sure i get my grades and do good in school and keep dad happy as long as i'm making sure i'm not making mom upset that mm -hmm. translated into my relationships etc and i was very very agreeable which is a fundamentally a positive thing but it became but it became debilitating yeah. it became debilitating over time and it's because of my well-meaning nature that i did that so it's not necessarily yeah. a bad thing and then on the other side you have guys who don't respond to that at all and they're like no fuck you 
right? Yeah. And yeah. they don't have the ability to connect with that energy, but they would be very, very benefited by it if they could. And so again, the split shows up where you have right. these sort of weak, weak, passive beta males, which is, I should mention, its own form of toxicity. It's mm-hmm. possible to be toxically nice. There's a book called No More Mr. Nice Guy. I've read extremely widely in this field, so you're going to hear me rattle off books the whole time. Good. No More Mr. Nice Guy by this by Dr. Robert Glover, another lovely man I've had on my podcast. And it goes into the nice guy syndrome, mm-hmm. where nice guys suppress their own authentic desires and feelings, mm-hmm. and the act of suppression builds up energy, and then they explode because mm-hmm. you can't keep it in forever. So that's how being you can be toxically nice. And different men are good at hanging on for different amount of times, but that was also me. Right. I had an explosive temper, unfortunately. I never mm-hmm. harmed anyone, but I certainly, you know, I, I didn't harm myself, but certainly I did damage to my life with my explosive temper, and I seemed like such a nice guy. It's because right. I was toxically nice. So this image of toxic masculinity, though it expresses itself primarily towards um, towards men who can't, who don't allow themselves to be shamed, essentially, there's a toxic nice guy side as well. And the whole the whole frame of it itself is part of a larger shaming mechanism of, of allowing culture to shame men out of their out of their competency because just to close the thought those nice guys are so afraid of being labeled like i don't want to be toxically masculine mm-hmm. like that politician or that you know that person or whatever so instead i'm just going to be passive because i don't want to be identified with that and yeah. it's destructive it's fundament it's fundamentally destructive to the best in, in men uh, because the shame force is so powerful over their truly genuine, generous and good hearts. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, there's a good bit of, of rehabilitation to do of men's hearts to get them to stand up for what they believe in. And I, I think a lot of that comes down to physical fitness as well, which we can get into. Yeah. Beautiful. Thanks so much. Well, we already, well, that's with, I feel we just <laughs> scrapped the surface. There's a lot more here. <laughs> uh, but we're at the end of the first hour. And in the second hour, I definitely want to dive deeper, you know, also of current events, the war culture, the left, you know, like what's happening. I also want to dive deeper into, you know, some practical solutions for men, like practical what they can do, you know, when they first hear about it, more suggestions of you and the work you do. Um, but just to close it off, um, where can people or men, anybody really reach you and listen to your podcast? Yeah, you can find uh, you can find my podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher. It's called The Renaissance of Men. Um, you can find me uh, on most active on Instagram right now, and that's Ren of Men at Ren of Men R E N O F M E N, like Renaissance of Men, but shorter Ren of Men. I'm also active on Twitter w- uh, at Will underscore Ren of Men, and uh, you can find me on my website renofmen.com. And all of those sources will be a good way to find my podcast if you don't want to type in the Renaissance of Men. Excellent. So, which is <laughs> I had to go through a whole thing with my. I have the links in the in the description anyway, and and in, in, sure. in, the, in the notes, show notes. Uh, but also, go, go ahead. ahead. Add one more thing: if you go to renofmen.com/library, you'll see a compilation of all the different uh, all the different books. And this list is growing all the time, so I'm trying to keep up with it. All the different books mm-hmm. I recommend leaders to follow, communities to become a part of that are about this larger renaissance, which is hundreds of thousands of men around the world. I'm I'm just trying to document it so that more men know about it. Excellent, because I was, I'm sure a lot of men were going to, I worry, I was thinking, going to ask you about the titles, the books. What was the book again? Was it, you know what I mean? So I, for myself again, uh, even as well. And I also wanted that people know because uh, our, my audience knows, I'm sure of David Whitehead, I've been on his podcast. He has been on my podcast and he recently was on your podcast for, some, uh, for an excellent uh, discussion. So definitely check out Will at renofman.com and, you know, his podcast on, you know, Spotify or iTunes and I'll link all of that below 
And for anybody, you know, again, the second hour is available for members. If you haven't signed up yet, please go to veilofreality.com and sign up to the membership. We'll give you access to all the second hours of this podcast, as well as the membership forum. And we'll be right back with Will Spencer and the Renaissance of Men. Thank you, Will. Thanks, Bernard.